You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Lessons from the world's top professors, anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. This is Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last episode, we explored life in the medieval city. This week, the rise of monarchies and the election of popes, and even a time of papal monarchs. All this power leads to a lot of fighting over who is the ultimate authority in Europe. I'll let Chris fill you in. So our next two topics kind of fit together. And they fit together because what we have in this high medieval period of about 1050 to about 1300 is the creation, not out of nothing, the development is a better way of putting it, of monarchies. We've had monarchies in the past, obviously. Certainly the Roman emperors were monarchs. We've had monarchs called pharaohs in Egypt and monarchs called kings and other things in ancient Mesopotamian civilizations. But this creation of a monarchy, a whole culture around a king and a court, really gets going in the Middle Ages in a way that we haven't seen since the time of Charlemagne, and that was short-lived an important precedent, but short-lived. And it's important to remember that monarchies are being built, let's use that word, built, in both the papacy and in these things that we're going to call nations. They're not nations in any modern sense, but there's this thing called France coming together, something called England and Germany and Spain coming together in a form that we haven't seen earlier. The relationship between different 
powers is the key to the story because one, what's the relationship between religious power and political or civil power in a context that wouldn't separate them when we come at them from a context where we would separate them? Two, which is the higher authority and where does that authority come from? And three, how does it really play out in real life? So one of the interesting things is that these relationships among so-called church and so-called state, phrases that wouldn't mean anything to medieval people, what is the context and where does that come from? It actually comes from feudalism, that rural structure that we saw, that hierarchy that we saw several topics ago. And so let's go back to a particular aspect of feudalism that's very important, that's very key to this story, and that's full of competition and conflict and controversy. And it's this thing called investiture. So let's go back to the feudal oath. If you remember, the feudal oath took place when a man knelt down and put his hands like this, and his superior put his hands around those praying hands, and the kneeling person pledged his oath of fealty inferior to his superior. Now, to an illiterate audience, looking at that, if I'm kneeling in front of you, and my hands are like this, and you put your hands around mine, it's pretty clear that you're the boss, and I'm the worker. But remember that I in turn, down the line, would have replicated that uh, ritual. And now I would be the superior, and I would have an inferior below me. Well, this thing is called investiture. This process by which I give authority to you, you hand authority down, you owe me certain actions, is called investiture. And the investiture controversy, with a capital I and a capital C, is something some of you may remember from uh, medieval history courses. But I think it's more helpful to look at it in terms of investiture controversies, because the big one that you know, we'll be looking at in a little while is this big battle between a pope named Gregory and a Holy Roman Emperor named Henry, and that's sometimes called the investiture controversy. And it really played out all across the map of medieval Europe. Now, what are the issues? So, that kind of highest level of the feudal structure, when a bishop or an abbot received his beneficium, or his office, or his benefice, from a superior, he received two sets of symbols. One are the symbols representing his temporal authority. And that might be some form of a scepter or a crown or earth itself, symbolizing his authority over the land. It it was typically a bowl with some soil in it. And then he would receive symbols of his spiritual authority. Now this might be more familiar to us if you've ever seen an image of a bishop, right? So there's a crozier, which is a shepherd's crook, a miter, what a lot of people call the pointy hat, and then a ring, which is worn here on the ring finger um, on the right hand. And as part of this ritual, the superior, who was usually a lay lord, would say to the inferior, a bishop or an abbot, Acipe ecclesiam, accept the church. Sometimes translated as receive the church. 
Now, if I'm looking at that, it sure looks to me like the bishop or the abbot is below the local lay lord. And that might be true in his temporal relationship, his vassal relationship, but it certainly isn't true in terms of his religious relationship because the bishop does not report to the local duke if he's got a theological question, he's going to go to an archbishop or the pope himself. So you can see that there's some ambiguity built in here that's not going to help the church. And on the largest scale, the biggest question as to which is the higher authority, we have examples of emperors vetoing papal elections or certain papal actions because the emperor is going to say, hey, I'm Constantine, I'm Charlemagne, I'm Charles Martel, I'm the defender of the faith. On the other hand, popes are going to sometimes veto the action or the election or the appointment of an emperor, because emperors kind of needed the support of people. Um, they're kind of a first among equals. And so the Pope might say, well, that person looks suited for the government job, but morally, no way. That person is certainly not suited in order to be an emperor, and I don't want him battling me for ultimate power. It takes us back to this notion that we saw with Justinian of sacred kingship and the iconography of political theology in this blurred context of civil and state claims. So certainly one of those kings or emperors would say, hey, I got lots of precedents. I have my own authority. Look at me. I'm in charge. I have an army. You don't. But I'm the heir of Constantine and Charlemagne and Justinian. And certainly we have examples of you, the church authority, giving me authority, giving my mandate by an anointing or a crowning. Remember Pepin the Short had been crowned and anointed? Charlemagne, Christmas Day? So too, a series of popes by the name of Otto, Otto I and Otto II, both crowned in Rome. In fact, there were even discussions at this time as to whether the anointing of a king was a sacrament. And after this period of time, nobody talks about it as a sacrament because the church did not want that. The particular problem, it really comes together around the 1040s. There's a really good emperor by the name of Henry III. And this emperor takes his responsibility as defender of the faith very seriously. And he comes from Germany down into Italy a couple of times. And the papacy is a mess in the 1040s. There are three or four people in the 1040s claiming to be the true pope. And they are in and out of office. One of them is in and out of office three times over the course of about 12 years. Nobody knows who's in charge. And along comes the emperor. And Henry III, by dint of being the heir of Constantine and Charlemagne, says, you know what, it's my job to clean up this mess because you obviously are not cleaning up this mess. And he begins to appoint, uh, engineer the election of a series of reform-minded popes who happen to be of German extraction, perhaps no surprise there. And the interesting thing is that even though he says, I'm fulfilling the role of defensor fidei, or defender of the faith, those reforming popes start to say, thanks a lot for putting me on the throne, now leave and I'll tell you what to do. Henry probably thought that he was faced with a great deal of ingratitude, but those reform-minded popes probably thought, no, they're cleaning up the shop. 
And so we look upon this period of time as one of Gregorian revolution. Now at this point, having listened to six topics, you might think, I never knew there were so many revolutions in this period. But there were. There were really big changes. And some people used to call this a Gregorian reformation. But the papacy before 1050 and the papacy after 1050, they look entirely different. Same sources of authority, but the way they operate, entirely differently. And they take this title, Gregorian, off of a particular pope named Gregory, you know, top 10 on everybody's list. And Gregory was Pope 1073 to 1085, but he was involved in the resolution of all of these schisms, and he worked for those reform-minded popes um, before that. So he was there for about 20 years before he himself was elected. So we call the popes before Gregory and after Gregory for about 200 years Gregorian Popes. They're part of this um, revolution. And these Gregorian popes had a couple of goals. One was a slogan called the Libertas Ecclesiae, the freedom of the church. And what that meant was the freedom of the church to name her own leaders. So it used to be that a bishop died or an abbot died and the local lord says, no, well, that church, that Basilica, that monastery, is in my jurisdiction as a vassal of the king, and so it's my job, it's my responsibility, it's my right to name that person. Well, the Pope says, well, that's terrific. That person might be your secular uh, vassal, but that person is certainly not below you in the spiritual hierarchy or the spiritual authority. No way. You're not going to name that person. So Libertas Ecclesiae, the freedom of the church to name her own. Because what was happening was that these dukes and counts were naming their brothers-in-law who might have nothing to do with a religious vocation. They're cronies. It's cronyism. That's what it is. So they were also against something called simony. Simony is the buying and selling of church offices. It refers back to a passage in Christian scripture or the New Testament where Peter, Simon Peter, is performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And Simon Magus, the word magus in the ancient world meant a magician, says to him, come on, there's got to be a trick here. I'll pay you to show me how you do this trick. So that became the buying and selling of church offices became called simony. And they were also against something called concubinage. Now a little controversy here. Sometimes people say, well, priests in the Catholic tradition used to be, could be married for a thousand years and that they've only been prohibited from marriage for a thousand years. It actually is true. It was on the books as far back as three or four hundred that priests should be celibate. But more often than not, they had what we would call a common law marriage, a common law marriage by which a person wasn't legally married or sacramentally married in any modern sense, but everybody knew who the priest's wife was. And he would hand down the parish church just like the butcher, the baker, or the candlestick maker, to his son, whether or not the son had a religious vocation. So this obviously is a problem because, again, you're not, uh, you don't have the integrity of the sacraments. It gets caught up in these inheritance issues. And so how did these Gregorian popes fight back through Peter? The ideology of St. Peter and papal supremacy. So Catholics believe, that, well, Christians believe at this point, Catholics and Protestants are going to be split on the interpretations of this later on, about 500 years later, that Peter receives from Christ the mandate or the commission. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And so all bishops of Rome, later called the popes, will say that they have a unique commission. 
All bishops receive their authority from God. All bishops are equal, but there's one bishop who's more equal than others. And so what these popes begin to do is they use this phrase, by apostolic succession, in their sermons, in their letters. And so as they're writing to emperors, they say, literally, as some popes had said in the 400s, a pope named Leo had said in the 400s, when you speak to me, you speak to Peter. When I make a decision, I don't make a decision. Peter makes a decision. And therefore, it's Jesus. Now, if you'd like to come after me, you'd have to come after Peter. And if you'd like to come after Peter, you'd like to come after Jesus. Perhaps you'd like to rethink your challenge to my authority. And so they begin to use this ideology of Peter. And they also realize that if you can't beat him, join him. It seems like the medieval popes were throwing down the gauntlet to establish their authority. We'll find out how that worked after the break. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. So, since they're going against this imperial monarchy and a king in France and kings in Spain and a king in England, they need to set up a parallel monarchy. So, just as there's a court or a curia among a king, they set up the College of Cardinals, which had kind of precedence earlier, but doesn't cohere. Remember, the papacy doesn't look after 1100 as it did before. This College of Cardinals, which gets a little bit bigger, but in the medieval world's a couple of dozen would be a large college of cardinals. Now we have about 120. And the college of cardinals become the ambassadors, become the legates, become the representatives, and they are the ones who exclusively elect the popes. Why? Because the freedom of the church to name her own needs an example. And the best example would be the election of a pope to show all the others this is how it's done. This is the freedom of the election. And so if I'm creating this administrative top-down structure, I need to set up what we would call departments, sometimes called congregations nowadays. And so these structures begin to get cohered. They had precedents in the past, but now more organized, such as a chancery, which is an office for the receiving, recording, copying, sending out of documents in a world before printers and copy machines. 
A financial department called the Camera. A Camera is a room, and they would count the money in a sealed room. Court systems as well, and cardinals would be in charge of all of these and work their way up to Pope, usually. So now let's look at, you know, the movie version of this, right? The case study, the big scene, and it's right out of Hollywood. Somebody really needs to make a movie out of this between Gregory VII and the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV. Henry IV is a very, very long reign. Henry IV likely knew Gregory VII before he was made um, Pope. His name was Hildebrand, had some German blood, some Italian blood as well. Gregory VII involved in all of these reform-minded popes. And now the question is, who's in charge? This is a battle royal. The flashpoint is Milan. Now think of where Milan is, right? It's at the top of Italy. So it's kind of like a connection between the empire most of the most of the territory of the empire is modern day germany and italy so that archbishop of milan is a pretty key person if you're the emperor looking to come down or the pope looking to extend your authority north and so each appoints his own man claiming that he emperor or pope has the ultimate authority and that is the trigger and what happens are like the series of acts in a play um, it's Henry versus Gregory. But the big problem for Gregory is you have these bishops who are in Germany who owe their secular power and their wealth and in some cases their jobs, their appointments to the king, the emperor. We call these the prince bishops. The prince bisshops are going to give Luther paroxysms of, of anger 500 years later. And these prince bishops line up with Henry, gulp, not with Gregory, their religious authority. So now Gregory is facing a revolt from his own men as well. And so Gregory says, you know what I'm going to do? And in his letters, he writes, by apostolic succession. At one point, he sends him, it was the formula to send someone an apostolic blessing, the blessing of Peter. And Gregory sends Henry a letter, and he says, I send you an apostolic blessing, provided that you are an obedient son. Kind of like raising your hands and giving a blessing and then stopping and say, I won't do this unless you um, clean up your toys. And Gregory excommunicates and deposes Henry. Well, there is no greater exercise of your authority than to say, you're out. Right? Someone can, can say to me, you know, you, you are, you have no authority to teach. And I would say, well, by, by what authority do you say I have no authority to teach? You don't like my class? You didn't like your grade? You know, that's not how it works. Everybody has got a boss, right? So Gregory is saying, I'm your ultimate boss. I don't really care that you're Holy Roman Emperor. My boss is bigger than your boss. And so he excommunicates and deposes Henry. And then he turns the feudal system on its head. He says to all of the vassals who had taken an oath of fealty, to Henry, who had knelt before Henry, he says, no deal. That oath is dissolved. You owe this man nothing. And if you follow this man, you will be excommunicated and deposed because you are following somebody who is out of the body of the church. And that's a bad scene. Now you have a lot of people who are going to say, oh, this is terrific. Henry has not been a great emperor to me. He gave me a job. That's terrific. But he taxes me. Let's get rid of Henry. Henry's in a tough situation. So in this dramatic scene known as the Snows of Canassa, this is the, this is the drama. Apparently, we're told that Henry stood barefoot as a penitent 
in the snow outside of a monastery at Canassa begging Gregory VII for forgiveness for three days. Likely that meant five minutes over the course of three days as a symbolic action. And Gregory is persuaded, well, let me show some mercy here. And he forgives Henry. He puts him back on the throne and he brings him back into the body of the church. But the damage has really been done for a couple of years back home. And Henry can't fight Gregory for a while because he's got all these people who are now, you know, uh, uh, risen up against him in a civil war. So it's not until a few years later that Henry gathers himself again and attacks Rome. Gregory flees, and in fact, Gregory dies in exile a few years later. So it looks like Henry's won. Now let's step away from the drama. Cooler heads are going to prevail. People are going to say, listen, we have to coexist. This is a difficult question. We're not going to resolve the question. We need to do business with each other. Let's come to an arbitration. And about 40 years later, that arbitration produces a truce. It's called the Concordat of Worms in 1122. And a later pope in this case by the name of Calixtus, and a later emperor, in this case a uh, emperor by the name of Henry V, decide we're going to find a middle ground. And this is the middle ground. Henry V says, I'm going to renounce my rights to give you the spiritual symbols. Not my place. A religious representative will give you the crozier, the mitre, and the ring. And Calixtus says, fair enough. Therefore, I am going to renounce any right that I claimed or my predecessors claimed that I had, and I am going to concede that you have the right to invest with the temporal symbols, the scepter, the crown, the clod of earth. So now we've kind of separated these two, this one ritual into two separate rituals. So let's look at how that actually would have worked. So a bishop or an abbot now typically um, appointed by the Pope or elected among his own monks or local priests is going to kneel before a representative of the Pope, likely a cardinal, and receive mitre, crozier, and ring. Then he's going to move to another spot Typically, this is done in a church. It might be done in the same ceremony. It might be done later on in a castle. And that bishop or abbot will kneel before a representative of, of the emperor, maybe Henry himself, and receive this temporal symbols. Scepter, crown, bowl of soil or earth. But there's a catch. There's always a catch, right? The catch is, Henry has said, I agree to a free election. If there's a bishop who dies and the priests are going to elect him or an abbot who dies or an abbess who dies and the monks or nuns are going to elect him, I claim a right that my legate can be present. Now you can see here what's going on, right? You can see a situation where all of a bunch of priests are in a diocese, are gathered together, they're talking, they're thinking, they're politicking, they're praying, and they say, we settle on Father Max. And Father Max is going to be Bishop Max. And the legate 
of the emperor does this. <clears throat> and everyone says, you know, maybe Father Max isn't such a good idea. And so they'll go to Father Michael or the next person in line. So it's an uneasy truce. I mentioned earlier that it's a truce, but it is in fact an uneasy truce. But you know, half a loaf is better than none. That's at least how the popes see it. Now, this thing about election, let me just say very quickly, is nowadays, um, if a bishop dies in the Catholic tradition, nobody looks to the mayor or the governor to appoint the bishop. The pope appoints the bishop. But in Protestant churches, um, sometimes there's an appointment and sometimes there's an election. Whether it's an appointment or an election, an appointment from the top or an election from below, the church is still asserting this principle of freedom the freedom of the church without inside interference, although as we've seen, the cleared throat clause, as it's sometimes called in the Concordat of Worms, gives the legate an opportunity to make his boss's name known. So what we really have through about 1300 are a series of papal monarchs, all Gregorian in terms of their goals, some more successful than others, some stronger than others, and some who really tried to be the ultimate authority in Europe, which in that time would be the world, and the most important one of those would be Innocent III. Someone once said that Innocent III, the canon lawyer pope, elected at 37, but dies at 51, what if he had lived another 30 or 40 years, that Innocent III was the last pope who could have claimed to have been the emperor of the world. What a note to end on. Thanks for listening to another episode of Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World. Next time, the beginnings of the modern nation state. We're a long way from the UN, but every idea has to start somewhere, right? Half Hour History, Secrets of the Medieval World from One Day University is a production of iHeart Podcasts and School of Humans. If you're enjoying the show, leave a review in your favorite podcast app and check out the Curiosity Audio Network for podcasts covering history, pop culture, true crime, and more. School of Humans. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org.
Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.